Welcome to Dishing Up Nutrition with licensed nutritionists and dietitians from Nutritional Weight and Wellness. We explain the connection between what you eat and how you feel. Stay tuned for practical, real-life solutions for healthier living through real food nutrition. Slow down, you move too fast. You got to make the morning last. Just well, Welcome down. to Dishing Up Nutrition, brought to you by Nutritional Weight and Wellness. I'm Darlene Kavist, and I'm the founder of Nutritional Weight and Wellness. And we have been sharing the benefits of eating real food on Dishing Up Nutrition for the past 17 years. You know, eating real food is is very simple. Such a, but it has a powerful message with it. We try to make it simple, Dar. We do. So, you know, we have a great show planned for you today. Our co-host, you just heard her voice, nutritionist Shelby Olson. And joining us this morning is Gary Tobbs. He's the author of the newly released book. In fact, it was just released two or three days ago. Right. The Case for Keto. You know, one of the things that Gary's going to do today is share some, just share some knowledge, share some light on why your friends can eat bagels and brownies and not gain any weight. (laughs) Well, for some of us, and for some reason... If I personally just look at a bagel or brownie, the number on the scale just slides up. I hear that with clients, too. I can't even look at that slice of chocolate cake without gaining weight. So many of you know Shelby's, and she's been on the on Dishing Up Nutrition. She's a nutritionist. And so, you know, one of the things that we want to do, Gary, first of all, welcome to the show. We love having you on. It's going to be a fun show. And Gary, one of the things that we would like to know is how come some people can eat whatever they want and people like myself, uh, not so much. <laughs> okay. Well, hi, hi, and thanks for having me on the show. Well, um, we, you know what, Gary, we, we have just a, a group of long-term listeners that probably struggle with this issue that you're talking about. And so, uh, it's, we're just going to do a fun show today with you, so <laughs> welcome again. <laughs> okay, well, I, I look forward to it. Good. And, um, yeah, to, to start with answering your question, um, you know, for 50 years or 60 years now, let's say since the Second World War, the notion has been that the reason some of us get fat and others don't is those of us who get fat just eat too much. Right. And uh, a lot of virtually all of the modern research in nutrition and obesity is, is goes into trying to figure out why we might eat too much but mm-hmm. not blame us for eating too much and not fat shaming. So it's a kind of a, a, a weird enterprise. And uh, when you actually look at the physiology of fat accumulation, it turns out that there could be very good reasons, not why some of us eat too much, but why some of us simply fatten easily. And in my new book, I use this phrase that's like right out of 1950s diet books. But you talk about it when you say, you know, you look at a bagel or chocolate cake, you gain weight. And some people don't. We all know people who are effortlessly lean. Yes. While the rest of us struggle with our weight our whole lives. And the question is, I mean, we intuitively know it's not just because we eat too much, because we work like heck to eat in moderation. Exactly. And yet we get fat anyway. And we exercise. And we exercise, <laughs> and 
you know, I'm in this odd position as as well uh, investigative science and health journalist. Where I'm I'm stuck asking these obesity researchers and uh, public health epidemiologists, like, do you really think everyone out there is overweight, is sucking down Coca Colas and living in McDonald's? I mean, and what sort of responses? Relatives. I mean, that's that's the thing is when we think about the last fifty years, you write in the first few pages of your book that. Obesity has increased 250%, diabetes 700% in the last 50 years. And so I think you have such a compelling um, amount of evidence just showing that it's not the victim mentality. It's not these people who really are, like you say, sucking down soda or driving through fast food all the time. There's got to be a a bigger picture. There does, but it's it's a complex situation. I mean, we're having this conversation this past week. U.S. News and World Report came out with their annual diet yes. rankings. And once again, they're, you know, the best diets as far as they're concerned and the best weight loss diets are the diets we've all been told to eat for the past 50 years. Uh, the Mediterranean diet is always number one. And so the assumption is that if we're overweight or obese, if we're pre-diabetic or diabetic, we clearly must not have been eating with doing what they've been telling us to do. And to say they're out of touch is a kind way to put it. Um, even when you look at the, uh, the, the USDA, that's the uh, the data on uh, what foods we eat and what the industry makes available to us, we clearly changed our dietary preferences to eat like they, the, the government wanted us to eat. Right, exactly. And as we did, so we got ever fatter and fatter. And, if, you know, there was just, uh, and again, as a, I came in this with no preconceptions and uh, just, wanted to understand what was happening. And I did it beginning 20 years ago when for the first time, uh, thanks to the Internet, you could uh, virtually every research article and book could be found somewhere, someplace, and, uh, you know, downloaded and read. Now you can download them all. Mm-hmm. And it just became clear that that some significant mistakes had been made about how we think about this, beginning with this idea that we get fat because we eat too much as opposed to obesity being a sort of uh, hormonal dysregulation and that people who fatten easily are going to fatten easily eating the same foods on which other people can stay effortlessly lean, which is, you know, how you introduce this. So, you know, one Uh, of the things, though, Gary, is to be honest, you know, if you see someone that is, oh, 40, 50, 60, 100 pounds overweight, I think we have been so conditioned that we start to think they must eat too much. <laughs> I mean, well, you I, know, I mean, it's just, it's just the way we think now, you know? And It is, but it wasn't when we were growing up. Somebody, you know, when I was in high school in the early 1970s, a long time ago, there was uh, <laughs> two, two obese children in our, you know, our high school class. We didn't think of them as people ate too much or people didn't get enough exercise. We thought of them as different. In fact, uh, you know, this is going to sound uh, pretentious. I've been rereading Tolstoy, War and Peace. It helps me sleep at night. <laughs> and uh, I read nutrition you know, books. It <laughs> puts yeah, me that, to sleep. That, well, that gets me angry. <laughs> so there's a character, and they, 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 they go to Uncle's house in War and Peace after a hunt, and the housekeeper is plump. 
Mm-hmm. And she's described as plump and walking like Anna's feet. And there's just no conception in reading this that anyone thinks she's sneaking back into the kitchen to stuff pastries down her face. She's just built differently than everyone else. Some people. There's a great new book out. Uh, by a young woman uh, who struggles with obesity, and it's called What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat, and about the, the all the various ways in which the oh, people who struggle with obesity are uh, poorly treated in this world, and um, I'm sure I didn't phrase that properly, but it's early in the morning here in California. Yes, I know um, it is. <laughs> But he just talks about some people are just built fat. And mm-hmm. so the question is, why? What would what would make some people's bodies want to accumulate fat? Just like some people are built tall and some people are built thin. Mm-hmm. And some people are built, you know, broad and some not. Some people, are, their bodies want to accumulate fat to excess and other people's bodies don't. And this is not at all how our obesity research community thinks about this problem. They think, and they all the research is dedicated to how can we get these people who are fat to eat less, and how can we understand why they eat too much, With, rather than saying how can we understand why they accumulate too much fat. Well, and that's actually and one of the things that I think you have written quite extensively about is trying to get to that, that root question of why. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the thing. The question you ask, this is a, like, if I ever write a book about science, which I hope to do some way, this is lesson number one. The question you ask determines the answer you get. Mm-hmm. And if you ask the question, why do people who struggle with obesity eat too much, mm-hmm. you're going to get an entirely different answer than the one of why do people who struggle with obesity struggle with obesity? Why do they accumulate too much fat? The only thing you really know about them is that they have these, you know, that they're burdened with excess fat. You know, nothing about how much they eat or exercise or how much energy they take in or their body expends. You just know that they accumulate too much fat. So that's your first question. Yeah. Exactly. And that's actually what we want to get into more on the next set of break. Gary, hold on just for a second. Um, you are listening to Dishing Up Nutrition, brought to you by Nutritional Weight and Wellness. We are pleased to interview author Gary Tobbs about his recently released book, The Case for Keto, Rethinking Weight Control and the Science and Practice of Low-Carb, High-Fat Eating. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Dishing of Nutrition. You know, if you are concerned about your A1C or your fasting glucose numbers or have been told that you're pre-diabetic or diabetic, we always say, look to your food. You know, it's kind of interesting because people are, clients are often surprised to learn that they're favorite oatmeal breakfast that they've been eating since childhood and have been told that it's healthy is one of the causes of higher blood sugar numbers. So if you're concerned about these numbers, and I think people should be concerned about their fasting blood sugar and the A1Cs, you know, just give us a call at 651-699-3438 or you can go online at weightandwellness.com and set up an appointment. So, Kind of let's get these numbers back down into that normal range. I think it's one of the more critical 
aspects of your health. Absolutely. Now, we are delighted to have author Gary Tubbs joining us from California. With the time difference, we know Gary is up early to share some interesting (laughs) insights with us about diet and weight control, which, you know, this is not new to Gary. You know, his his uh, first book that I read was actually Good Calories, Bad Calories. His latest book is called The Case for Keto. He has also written Why We Get Fat and The Case Against Sugar. Now, in his most recent book, The Case for Keto, Gary explores why many of us need to eat fewer carbohydrates, just like you had mentioned the oatmeal, Dar, Mm -hmm. and eat more healthy fat to lose weight and stay healthy. So, Gary, when you say fewer carbohydrates, tell our listeners what you mean. Well, (laughs) the phrase I use in the book... uh, which I borrow from uh, the most famous book ever written about food, which was called The Physiology of Taste, and mm-hmm. it was written in 1825. And probably not too many Franklin. people have read that. <laughs> <laughs> probably not, but it's been in print since 1825. Um, the Salo Jean uh, said uh, more or less rigid abstinence to carbohydrate-rich foods, more or less rigid abstinence. And again, depends on the extent of your, you know, how difficult it really is for you to control your weight and your blood sugar. Um, so, Gary, but the idea, Gary, when you, th- when, when you think about that for a client, you know, just put that in common words. What does that mean, really? You know, when you say that, it means to me, you throw out the toast. I mean, you know, yeah. And, and I think I, that's, that's kind of, like what else do you kind of need to throw out if you're not if you're going to cut down on those carbohydrates? Okay, so easiest way to think about it is don't eat sugars, don't eat sweets, starches, and grains. Um, mm-hmm. The you know it, it just gets problematic, right? Because people are saying, "But that's everything I ate." Actually, that's what. Briat Savaron said in 1825, too. He said, I tell people to do this. And they say, but doctor, what's left? <laughs> um, and he wasn't a doctor. Uh-huh. Uh, so let's just talk about the reason why, the physiology here. Okay. So, uh, in, you know, the medical community has always thought of the hormone insulin as a hormone that controls blood sugar, which mm-hmm. it does. You secrete it in response to the carb, primarily in response to the carbohydrates you consume. But one of the ways insulin does control blood sugar is it does it by telling your fat tissue to hold on to all the fat you've eaten and not to release the fat you've stored. Mm-hmm. So when insulin is secreted, you are storing fat. Again, 50 years ago, diet book doctors would have said you're in fat storage mode. Mm-hmm. But your body is indeed in fat storage mode when you're secreting insulin. And the physiology of this has worked out pretty well between the 1960s and the 1980s. And it turns out that your fat tissue is what metabolism researchers would have called exquisitely sensitive to insulin. So if there's even the slightest bit of insulin in the circulation, your fat tissue is in storage mode. It's holding on to the fat that you've stored, and it's storing any fat that you're eating, and it leaves you carbohydrates to burn for fuel. And the insulin is actually telling the rest of your body just burn carbs. And that's one reason why when you have a carb-rich breakfast, Mm-hmm. You know, the cereal, skim milk, orange juice, banana, piece of toast, you're hungry two hours later. 
because as your blood sugar comes down, your insulin stays elevated and you can't access the fat that you've stored to use for fuel, which is what you should be doing. So if you want to get fat out of your fat tissue and burn it for fuel, which is what any of us want to do, whether we're overweight or not, right? you got to minimize insulin. So that for some of us, that means not eating sugars, starches, and grains, and then replacing those calories with healthy fats. And when you're doing that, you're basically you're eating a ketogenic diet. You're doing keto. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the sort of basic physiology behind everything well, I say let- in the book. And as I point out over and over again, it's it's textbook medicine. It's just the medical community refused to consider it relevant to obesity because they were too busy blaming obese people for eating too much. Exactly. So, Gary, in your book, you talked about you shared uh, 600 calories, two different eating plans, and they were both 600 calories. One, you said, would help people gain weight easily, and one would help people not gain weight. Can, Can you share a little bit about the difference between those two kind of meals or those two... 600 calorie same uh, calorie different different makeup with those meals walk us through that well okay and i I wanted to do this exercise because i it was one way to sort of uh refute this idea that 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 dieting is about necessarily eating less and it's all about the calories so we could start at dinner And a typical American dinner, let's just say it's a skinless chicken breast with broccoli and baked potatoes. Um, You know, it's about 40 to 50% of the calories from carbs. uh, Because of the skinless chicken breast, it's about 30% protein probably. Probably, And I had a picture in the book. I weighed all the foods. It's 600 calories of food. And this is what you've been eating all along. This is what we've been told to eat. And if you're a, somebody who struggles with their weight, this this meal is fattening because of primarily the calories in the potatoes. So the flip side so is... So, Gary, uh, Gary, hold. Yeah. I think most people who eat this, you know, dried up chicken breast <laughs> would think, <laughs> think this is a perfect way to eat to lose weight. And this is how we've been told to eat for 50 years. Yeah, and it's also the ideal heart-healthy diet in theory. Um, you know, we have this idea that you should never, to, you know, you're, you have an eating disorder if you restrict an entire food group. So God forbid you shouldn't eat the potatoes. Um, right. right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, this is, this is the ideal healthy diet. But it's, for those of us who are eating it, the potatoes are going to keep us fat. Exactly. Not make us fatter. So. Exactly. You know, let, let me give you a personal, if I eat that potato, my blood sugar is going to go up and then I'm going to get that insulin response and then I'm going to gain weight. I mean, yeah, it's simple, but so it hard, hard for people to understand. Okay. So now let's look at the, the same, you know, a similar dinner with 600 calories. That is part of key is keto is the part of the Atkins diet. And that would be. Keep the broccoli, but now put the pat of butter or olive oil on it. Get rid of the, well, excuse me, get rid of the baked potatoes, yep. twice as much broccoli. Put butter and olive oil on it. Instead of the skinless chicken breast, you have chicken thighs with the skin. So the chicken thighs are 
fattier than the breast. So, Gary, sorry to interrupt you. We ask you this question, and we've got to take a a short break here. Sorry about that, You are listening to Dishing Up Nutrition. 2020 may have found you calming your stress and worries with candy and cookies and all the sugar. And then you stepped on the scale and thought, how did this happen? Maybe it's time to get some support and guidance to get back in control of your food choices and have the scale making um, you feel good, right? Our Nutrition for Weight Loss program starts the week of January 18th. Our 12-week program is offered via Zoom. Well, welcome back to Dishing Up Nutrition. You know, as both Shelby and I have said earlier, we're so pleased to have Gary on the, the show today. You know, he's the author of The Case for keto and you know i we both believe that uh the work of gary Tobbs has been intra- instrumental in helping people realize they don't have to suffer with low fat starvation food to lose weight or to maintain their weight there's a different way there's a better way now and gary has been talking and writing books about this now for the last 20 years for sure so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and gary before we went to break you know we were kind of comparing in chapter 15 of your book, the uh, 600 calorie dinner that has the potatoes and the skinless chicken breast. And then you were you were just talking a little bit more about that comparison. So if, if you could bring us back into that comparison of a 600 calorie dinner keto versus, you know, what people have been told to eat for too many years. Right. So the uh, yeah, the traditional healthy dinner, skinless chicken breast mashed potato, broccoli. That's it. And you cook it all in the wok so you don't use any fat. Right. <laughs> uh, and it's 600 calories. And then the Atkins diet or keto or any low-carb, high-fat diet, the equivalent is a, hold the potatoes, double order of broccoli, put some butter or olive oil on them, mm-hmm. and uh, chicken thighs with the skin attached. Mm-hmm. So both dinners are 600 calories. One would be fattening, and the other would be part of a what you know the, the medical establishment has traditionally considered a fat weight loss diet. Mm-hmm. And yet the main difference is you don't eat the potatoes. You put butter or olive oil on the broccoli. You have even more green vegetables than you usually have. And you're eating chicken thighs instead of with skin instead of skinless chicken breast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Identical calorie, and you can do the same for every meal. In the book, I have a photo of a sort of classic fast food lunch, again, around 600 to 700 calories. And it's, mm-hmm. a, you know, a burger, a hamburger from McDonald's with French fries and a, and a small Coke. And the flip side is you have the burger without the bun on a salad and, and you know, with the avocado slices and water and, oh, excuse me, a double burger with cheese. But mm-hmm. if you don't want to have the double burger with cheese, you can have a piece of salmon. You know, uh, you can right. make these. That, that's, now you're eating the South Beach diet. It's another low-carb, high-fat well, way and to eat. People typically look at those sorts of meals also, and they say they notice the fat component, too. I hear all the time, Shelby, you're you're telling me that I can eat butter. I, I can eat, you know, avocados and nuts and seeds. So, you know, oftentimes that fat component also trips people up. So tell us a little bit more about, you know, how we've been confused about low fat and its connection to heart health. You know, here in um, Minnesota, we're actually not far from where Ansel Keys did his research at the University of Minnesota. So 
Tell us about Ansel Keys' research and why it set people up to believe the wrong nutritional information. Okay. Well, and that's well, I'll just, one thing I wanted to say quickly is that one thing I did for this book, The Case for Keto, is I interviewed 120 plus physicians who mm-hmm. had sort of converted to the way we think and uh, prescribe, eat this way themselves and prescribe these diets to their patients and think it's the healthiest thing they could do for their patients. And um, they all said the same thing, basically, which is one of the biggest challenges they had is accepting, getting their patients to accept the fact that they can eat fat and it's not going to kill them. That was the biggest challenge for me when I first tried eating this way as an experiment. I was convinced bacon and eggs in the morning was going to kill me and I'd have a heart attack before lunch. Um, (laughs) The Ansel Keys, University of Minnesota nutritionist in the 1950s, he's the kind of guy who people describe as not suffering fools gladly, which means he's pretty bright, but anyone who disagrees with him, he can't tolerate. Um, He decides in the 1950s, he comes up with this hypothesis that we get heart disease because the fat in our diet raises cholesterol. And people say, well, it's not... Anyway, he, he then it gets honed over the years to saturated fat raises LDL cholesterol. And uh, it's the only hypothesis really out there at the time, or the only one in the United States anyway. And in the 1960s, the research community starts doing clinical trials to test this hypothesis. And for the most part, it fails every test. Um, And what they can show is that if you get people to eat less fat or if you switch the saturated fat for polyunsaturated fats, people actually live longer, which is what you want to do ideally. Um, For every study that suggests this might happen, there's a study that suggests that the people who eat polyunsaturated fats instead of saturated fats might die prematurely. In fact, the biggest study ever done in the U.S. was a Minnesota heart study on which, uh, a coronary study on which uh, Ansel Keys was a co-author. And when they realized that people seemed to be dying prematurely on their, their polyunsaturated fat-rich diet, they didn't publish the results. It, it, was, it was eventually published 18 years later after the principal investigator, the year after he retired from the University of Minnesota, he published the results. Right. So, Gary, with so, those polyunsaturated fats, just to kind of bring our listeners into that, that would be the things like corn, soybean, canola, more of the seed-based oils. Yeah, the seed oils and mm-hmm. the vegetable oils, other than olive oil. Right, right. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, it didn't stop them. You know, this is one of the problems with all bad science. Um, the researchers become, they fall in love with their hypotheses. That's yes. the <laughs> phrase that they use. And no matter how many experiments they do, if, you, if the experiment doesn't get the right result, you say the experiment was done. If it doesn't get the result you believe it should, you say obviously they didn't do the experiment correctly or the clinical trial correctly. And it's funny, sometimes that's true and sometimes that's not, and that's what makes science so damn difficult to do, if you'll pardon the language. Um, <laughs> the, but in this case, they were putting, and the researchers knew it. In the late 1970s, when the federal government got involved and said the whole country should reduce their fat consumption and replace these fats with carbohydrates, they thought healthy carbs, whole grains, mm-hmm. vegetables, not Wonder Bread. Um, they, uh, it was hearings in Congress in which the head of the National Academy of Sciences says you're putting the, doing an experiment and your subjects are the entire American public. And 
over the next 20 years, we saw the results of the experiment, and that for the most part, we ate the way we were told to eat. We ate less animal fats and more vegetable oils. We mm -hmm. reduced our red meat consumption and replaced it with chicken and skinless chicken breasts, and we got ever fatter and more diabetic. Right, right. And so now, you, yeah, ask the question. Later, people, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, 40 years later, the nutritionists, informed nutritionists like you guys are stuck to having to tell your patients, look, don't worry about the fat. It's the carbs that are the problem. Mistakes have been made. But you can also say, trust me, we can put you on this diet as an experiment. You'll see how well you do. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. right. And you'll, you'll feel better. You'll lose weight without being hungry, which is absolutely critical. And you'll be able to maintain a healthy weight without being hungry, which all the time, which is absolutely critical. And so it's such you, faith to what uh, the government tells us. Okay. So, Gary, um, you know, I think that, that you explained that so well. I get one of the other things just to kind of get people thinking is, again, let's go back over a little bit of calories in and calories out. And one of the, it was interesting when I read Michael Pollan's book the first time with his comment in there. And I thought that doesn't work for a lot of people. Can you dig into that a little bit and explain to, to what he really said and what it meant? Am I well, Michael Pollan, the journalist turned nutrition authority, just like me, but a little more famous. Uh, Michael's famous. <laughs> oh, I don't think so. Is, <laughs> um, I hope not. But um, <laughs> anyway, the uh, his famous uh, he boiled all healthy nutrition advice down to six words, mm -hmm. seven words. And his book, In Defense of Food, it was the first seven words in the book. Uh, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Yes. Okay. And I, I agree with him completely on eat foods, and by that he meant whole foods rather than what he. A lovely phrase, food-like substances that you buy, and you know the, all the processed foods in the in the center aisles of the supermarket. Um, but mostly, uh, not too much it implies once again that people who can't control their weight can't control their weight because they eat too much. It's just a clever way to say the same thing. And you know, those of us who struggle with this problem know that it's not. We can't control our weight even when you know we have two. Two choices, in effect, be hungry all the time or get fatter. And we know from other research by Ansel Keys at the University of Minnesota that nobody can tolerate hunger That's right. for a long period of time. This was his famous studies on, on semi-starvation diets in the 1940s during the war. Um, you know, it, it causes what the eating, he was feeding these conscientious objectors, diet, low-fat, healthy diets of 1,600 calories a day. 1,600 calories, which is more than what, you know, women are told, for instance, to eat if they want weight loss. Right. Well, many of and them are, his, you know, yeah, many women are told to eat 500 calories to right. lose weight. Right. Well, so, Gary, it, we it, definitely it, want to talk, you know, on the backside of break here. I'm going to take us to our last break, and um, then we'll come back and get right back into it. You are listening to Dishing Up Nutrition, and our interview with Gary Tobbs this morning he is an author of a number of books, including his latest, The Case for Keto. 
Good calories, bad calories, and of course, one of our favorites, the case against sugar. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Dishing Up Nutrition. You know, many of us are motivated to keep our weight in check because we want our clothes to fit better and we want to look better. But with the ongoing pandemic, there is a greater reason to keep your weight under control. Researchers continually point out that people who are overweight or obese are more at risk for getting the COVID-19 and having a rather poor outcome. So, you know, for this reason alone, you know, don't put off saying, I'm going to get healthy tomorrow. (laughs) Do it today. So keep listening to Dishing Up Nutrition because I think we help. You know, check out Gary Tobb's books, great books. You know, go to our website, weightandwellness.com, make an appointment with one of our nutritionists and... I think we have a solution for you. You know, the reality is most of us need support to do better for ourselves. It's just what it is. Right. So let's go back to our discussion. Yes, Gary, you were you were in the middle of a thought, so we'll let you have the mic back. <laughs> do you remember yeah, where we were? But you're going to have to remind me what thought I was in the middle of. Um, <laughs> Great. So we were actually talking, you know, more specifically about kind of 1600 calorie diets and really this idea that a lot of us feel like we have to, you know, be hungry in order to lose weight. Yeah. Okay. So this was, I was talking about this uh, study done by Ansel Keys at the University of Minnesota in the late early 1940s. And uh, so it was, it's a very famous study. Two volumes uh, report was published on it by Keith and his colleagues called The Biology of Human Starvation. But what they were starving their subjects on were 1,600 calorie a day, low-fat, healthy diets, mm-hmm. um, green vegetables, starchy vegetables, potatoes, or, you know, some kind of tuber, and uh, a little bit of meat. And uh, they talked about uh, semi-starvation neurosis. And actually, two of the 34 uh, subjects uh, tried to mutilate themselves to get out of the trial. One of them cut off several of his fingers because he couldn't tolerate living on 1,600 calories anymore. Mm -hmm. And so we know that lean people or relatively lean people can tolerate these diets. Why would we expect people who struggle with overweight to do it Mm -hmm. and then on top of it when they were done with this trial they got people to lose about you know over the course of six months they lost about uh i think it was maybe 25 pounds which they didn't have a lot to lose but that's not particularly great it's a weight loss diet and then they when they started allowing them to eat as much as they wanted to they suddenly realized they had a control because these young men would eat themselves sick Mm. and uh by they, they would eat as much as 10,000 calories a day to, as their bodies are trying to replenish the fat and muscle that they've lost. And um, all of them ended up fatter than they started. So what they called it um, uh, post-starvation obesity, uh-huh. um, which we've all gone through. Right. And that's what's so bizarre, being a journalist in this field, coming at it with from uh, no bias at all. And you have these, one of the most famous studies in all of uh, nutrition, uh, obesity research, and it tells you that just making people eat less is not an answer to anything. Um, so you understand the physiology and you fix what's wrong. And the, the yeah. physiology tells you for many of us, carbohydrates are fattening. And if we don't want to be fat, we can't eat them. It's like regrettable and it's unfair that our friends can eat them and we can't. But, <laughs> 
We can't. That's well, true. That's very true. Message. And what you've described with that research, I think, really resonates for a lot of the people that I work with that would describe themselves as compulsive eaters. You know, they they try to, quote unquote, be good for a week or two weeks or even a month. And then as soon as they have that carbohydrate, they have that sugar again, um, you know, they kind of go into this binge cycle as well. And so it sounds like you're helping people see that there is a different path. Right. And the, and the physicians I interviewed um, and the way you talked about it says pretty much the same thing. They tend to think of what they do as uh, weaning people off their carbohydrate addiction the same way you would if you were in an alcohol treatment center. You would wean, you know, wean people off of alcohol. Or um, I tend to think of it a lot as smoking because I, you know, I smoked cigarettes when I was younger and it was the hardest thing I ever did to quit smoking. Mm-hmm. But it was also the best thing I ever did, other than you know, marriage and children and things like that. <laughs> um, the uh, you know, I failed over and over again, yeah, and so- eventually I succeeded. And I still think of myself. I know if I were to smoke a single cigarette, I'd be back to being a smoker. So I don't do it. And right. that's that's um, exactly what uh, a lot of our clients, as soon as they they decide, oh, I can have that little sweet treat or that little piece of brownie or that little mm-hmm. little something. Mm-hmm. And I say they're off and running again, you know, and they're running yeah. on and it's sugar. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. And it's funny, some of us, one of the things that uh, these physicians told me who prescribed this to their patient, it's like uh, one wonderful doctor in, in Virginia said, you know, so you, you have, first of all, you have to practice this. Like anything, if you want to get good at it, it takes practice. Very and good. all this advice is in the book because I wanted people to understand this. Um, you have to work at it constantly, just like when we, you know, I'm trying to get my 12 year old to be not embarrassing on the piano. I'm always pushing him to practice and practice more and keep at it mm-hmm. and learn how to do it right and read up on it. Uh, the physicians always often use this phrase going down the rabbit hole. They started reading books, not just mine, but the Nina Teicholz is a big fat surprise and Jason Fung's The Obesity Cold, Dr. David Ludwig, a Harvard professor, has a wonderful book called Always Hungry. There's right. you know, dozens and dozens of books out there where you can understand both how your body works, which is not what you've been told you eat too much. That's the message, and it's not that. how your, Why your body stores excess fat and what you have to do if you want to stop and reverse that process. And, and yeah, unfortunately, it means you may never have a donut again. Right. Just like quitting smoking meant I would never have a cigarette again. And believe me, that was, I craved cigarettes more than donuts. Well, I and like a donut. Gary, one of the things that I want to kind of go back to here is you had mentioned in, in the last chapter of your book, you know, a mom with a young child saying that, she has to be very careful about the language that she uses because if she is talking to other moms or teachers about, well, we eat a low carb diet, that's almost like a horrific response that she gets instead of changing that language to, well, you know, we eat meat and vegetables and healthy fat. And all of a sudden there's praise about this is how you feed your kids. So I'm kind of curious with the last couple of minutes here, how does your work impact the choices that your family makes? And I, I know you mentioned you have two children so what do your kids think of your your work <laughs> Good question. Uh, i like to think they respect me but you'd have to ask them um 
And I want to talk about the words we use. I, I actually, you know, the book is called The Case for Keto, and I understand why the publishers wanted to call it, get the word keto in mm-hmm. the title because it's catchy and people mm-hmm. will search keto and the book will come up. But it, it's exactly it. It's, it's This isn't a fad diet. It's not about uh, doing a diet. It's right. about how you eat, and it's about eating healthy, and it's a way that it, – you can eat healthy where you actually see the results of eating healthy pretty quickly. You don't have to just hope you're going to be lowered your risk of heart disease. You can see your health improve when you eat this way. And, you know, my kids, I don't, I don't have a family history of obesity. And so I keep their sugar consumption low. There are no fruit juices or sodas in the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, plenty of potato chips. My wife is a potato chip fan. They get cereal for breakfast. You know, one of my, my youngest son is an athlete, and he is a carb craves. It worries me a little bit, but he, he could eat a burrito the size of his head. My oldest son is built more like I was when I was younger, mm-hmm. and he, other than breakfast, kind of self-selects not to eat the starch at lunch and dinner. Um, you know, it's I trust that if their weight gets out of control when they they get older, as it does for many of us, we're fine through our youth, that they right. hopefully, because of my work and the work now of tens of thousands of physicians out there are thinking this way, that they'll see that this is a, a viable option. They'll be able to control it. Um, my wife is a um, mostly vegetarian. She grew up that way. And uh, it, you can do, you can you know, whether you're vegetarian or vegan, you could still abstain from eating starchy vegetables yes. and grains. Uh, it's harder to avoid getting carbs in your diet because your protein uh, sources, beans and legumes primarily, or soy, uh, comes with carbon. Well, the beans and legumes come with carbs attached. Mm-hmm. So, but you can do these diets. There are Facebook groups. Uh, for vegan ketogenic diets. And again, a ketogenic just means you're abstaining from carb-rich foods and replacing them with fat, ultimately. Yeah, yeah. You so, know, I, um, I, I think, Gary, one of the things when, we, when we're working with people, we just say, you know, lower your carbs and increase your fat a little. I think one of the wisest things that you said today was people just have to practice, practice and practice and practice and then you have pretty good results. You know, one of the other things that I guess before we go off is that, you know, there's more reasons to eat this way. And one of them is to reduce inflammation in your body, which is so key. Well, gosh, Gary, we have to thank you again for getting up early and joining us on Dishing Up Nutrition this morning. Um, check out his book, The Case for Keto. Our goal at Nutritional Weight and Wellness is to help each and every person experience better health through eating real food. It's a simple yet powerful message. Eating real food is life-changing. Thank you for joining us today and have a great one. Thank you, Gary. We really appreciate your work. Thanks for listening to Dishing Up Nutrition. If you enjoy this podcast, please share your favorite episodes with a friend or leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio. The content and opinions expressed are those of the hosts or presenters. They are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Product statements have not been evaluated by the FDA.